0: Okay, move out.
1: You're listening to the Valor Podcast with Nick Lehman, a show highlighting the people who defend the United States of America and those who support them.
0: Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country.
2: Hello and welcome to the Valor Podcast. This is going to be a little bit of a different podcast. I'm going to talk about D-Day, and I have a special treat for you. Over the past few years, I've had the opportunity to interview veterans who participated in D-Day. June 6th, 1944. First, I would like to thank our show sponsor, Booyah Media. They have helped us with our online and web support, and you can see their work at booyamedia.com. That is booyamedia.com. D-Day, June 6th, 1944. It's the largest amphibious invasion in history. It was called Operation Overlord. Over 425,000 Allied and German troops were killed, wounded, or went missing during the Battle of Normandy. The figure includes over 209,000 Allied casualties, with nearly 37,000 dead, Amongst the ground forces, 16,700 plus deaths among the Allied air forces. There was paratroopers, there was planes, there was all kinds of things that went into this planning. And it was so top secret that people did not even speak about it or even were told about it until the day of. So the first story that I'm going to tell you is how I really got involved in the D-Day veterans and why I really thought it was important. One of the stories that I had the opportunity to tell was for the 60th anniversary. I was wanting to find a D-Day veteran and interview him about the day, see what it was about. So I was calling every single VFW and American Legion and any other Veteran organization that I could think of that might have contact to a to a D-Day veteran. I was at wit's end. It was the last call I made of the day, and the guy on the other line says, "Yeah, you know, matter of fact, there was a guy that came in here a few months ago. His name is John Monteverdi, and I don't have a number for him, but that's that's the number I or, that's the name I got. So I looked up his name in the white pages and there was there was his phone number so i gave him a ring his wife picked up and i was i thought ah man he he probably passed and and you know that that was the end of the d-day story for that year but she said no he's at the store here's his cell phone give him a ring so i gave him a ring he picked up and i said hello mr monteverdi my name is nick layman and I'm doing a story on D-Day. I would love to interview you. And he go he paused for a minute and said, Well, you know, I I wouldn't be the best to talk about this because I have a twin brother. And I my eyes started to get big because it's like, holy cow, a twin brother. And I was expecting him to say he he died that day, or he, you know, he's no longer with us that day. And he goes, You know what? He lives about a block and a half away from him, but he doesn't talk about it. Let me let me see if he wanted to talk about it. So I said, okay, great. He calls me back within about 10 minutes, and he goes, I convinced my brother to talk to you about it. So we set up the interview. I got there, and John and Frank Monteverdi, they were fraternal twins, so they weren't identical. One was 5'7", John was 5'7", and... Frank, he was a taller man. He was about 6'1", 6'2". And these men defined the greatest generation. They were, you know, real manly looking men. And they had a lot to talk about over that two, three hours that I spent with them. So I asked John a little bit about his experience because he he was a couple days in. And we're kind of doing the dance of getting to know each other and, and all that. And, and Frank was very cautious with telling the stories. And he was very guarded with them. Both of them were in the 29th Infra- Infantry Division. And they. I just asked Frank, I was like, was it cold that day? Or, you know, Mr. Monteverdi, but Frank and...
1: From there... We were landed onto landing crafts on that morning, and we had to go into uh, Omaha Beach. Well, the Germans had set up barriers even in the water, so many men drowned with all the heavy weight and uh, munitions and pack they were carrying. It was we had these backpacks. We had our rifles, mortars and everything, and the landing craft. Couldn't go onto the beach, so they had to let us into the water, leave us there, and us to make the rest of the way to the beach. And you had those barricades underwater, the Germans had a minefield situation. And uh, you know, you just bring an A. You see people ahead of you in trouble, you heard of it, you try to be careful and avoid that area. But you didn't know if you were safe. And when you got onto the beach, at least you knew you weren't going to drown. But you now you were under intense, more intense fire, and it was a blistering fire. You just figured, hey, am I going to get out of this uh, out of this water alive? Was that bad? But on the other hand, you know it's hard to say. You say, hey, your primary concern is get out of the water and get to the beach. Well, the fact is, when we got to the beach, it was even worse because the Germans had already, for years, trenches. Planted guns in different places where they had an arc of fire on the beach. So on the beach, it was a scourge. Blood, it was a bloodbath to put it. I mean, you said you saw it, saving Private Ryan. I think that was a decent effort to portray it, but nothing can ever portray the blood, the, the people missing the limbs, heads, crying, screaming, and hurt.
2: Frank went on and conquered Normandy Beach with his brothers in arms and, you know, started making a push through France and trying to liberate everybody that, that was under Nazi Germany reign. And he was, he was captured by German prisoner He was captured by German soldiers and sent to 11 months to a prison camp. And his twin brother, John, had no idea. During this interview, there was a point where both Frank and John realized that they hadn't really talked about their war experience with each other and I just let the conversation go and so here's what uh, they talked about when John found out that Frank was captured in POW.
3: this major went with me he, he wanted to help me so he and I went we've located the 115th regiment uh, Frank's company and then we found out that the night before, his battalion had been wiped out, see? So I knew it. See, here I locate my brother in no time, better, but I didn't get to go home like they show you in Private Ryan. I never even thought about going on number well, one. To
1: see the point is, you know, it's also that I mentioned, Look, similar to Private Ryan, Our mother was a widow.
3: And my mother, yeah. We yeah showing that was the key. yeah. yeah hey,
1: that's yeah, just a point um,
3: but all I meant to the, the movie the thesis was the army went out of its way to locate that, <laughs> and they didn't try hard with me uh, hey, that's yeah. a
1: different world. but
3: that that so, but anyway, I have found out that uh he was missing in action the night before, so I know that
2: um that meeting is one a lot of these world war two greatest generation folks hadn't really shared their stories with even their siblings. I mean, this this guy shared the womb with with John and, and Frank and vice versa, and they hardly ever talked about it. And that day was the first time that both of them really talked about their war experience. So, you know, I, I went back to their house and gave them some CDs from the story that I aired. And, and John was very appreciative, and he... He said, you know, that that Monday, the day of uh, D-Day, we just sat down and we talked about our war experience. And, you know, it was just a great thing to share. I didn't ask what they talked about. That was not my business. So this next story that I had the opportunity to find was Master Sergeant Jose Jimenez. He was with the 501st parachute. He was with the 501st Parachute Infantry Regiment. He was attached to the 101st Airborne. He was a screaming eagle. Now, if this rings a bell, these are the guys that were depicted in that Band of Brothers TV show and the book. And so he was introduced to me by a family friend that said, "Yeah, oh yeah, he 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 jumped out of planes and he was part of D-Day and and uh you know, he was he was he was doing it. He was he was a para, para, he was a paratrooper. I said, Oh man, I, I have to meet this guy. So uh we got it arranged and it was, you know, as advertised. Walked in and uh you know Mr. Jimenez had all of his war awards and he even had a parachute that he used from Battle of the Bulge. And he just started talking about his war experience and everything that went with it. And, you know, he he was one of those guys that just jumped out of a plane and didn't even know what was going to happen. You know, the planes that were flying that day were being shot down. They were crashing. There was so much going on when they were being uh, dropped in the middle of the night. That was the goal was to drop all these paratroopers in the middle of the night. There was 13,000 of them. No telling how many perished uh, during the drop or how many survived when they landed, but Mr. Jimenez, he survived.
4: I can't forget that date, you know, June 6 uh, 1944. Well we knew we we're going somewhere <laughs> we know we're getting get it ready, we'll get it ready, yeah, yeah you get our weapons clean and everything that's what we're waiting that just before to get in a, the airplanes just right by the airplane the airfield in in Europe doing Eisenhower, cause he he run twice, president Eisenhower. And uh well, he was my commanding officer in europe, you know he went to talk to us that, that night before we jumped in Normandy. Well, it's just good luck, and uh, we pray for you and all that you know we I thought he was saying goodbye to the troops, you know, he was pretty quiet, he' pretty quiet because, <laughs> you know how uh, do you do something like that look like. During the days, uh, when everyone feels excited, you know. And uh, when you're doing something like that, you just pray, you know, everything will be all right. About 200 to 300 feet, maybe. So it's supposed to jump from 700 to 900 feet. <laughs> it went down <laughs> quite a bit. <laughs> That's what I figured out about. But the but you open it's barely but you was already in the ground yeah I got saved by the bell
2: <laughs> in his the other thing in the interview was he wore a bolo tie and it had a purple heart on it, and his belt buckle had the airborne wings. I mean this guy was as airborne and as hard charging as you can imagine. And so he he was a great, great interview. He talked about life, took me out to dinner, and even shared a little bit about uh, how they, you know, hooked up everything and went out and jumped. And the thing that was crazy is this man got on a plane knowing that he could die in midair. He could die on the ground. He could die while his parachute's being deployed. And he didn't care he was he was going towards the objective of securing normandy and that, that just is that's just a whole bunch of courage right there and i i don't i don't know i i have a very deep admiration for men that uh, participated in this operation so the next guy that i had the pleasure of interviewing and talking to was tech sergeant bernard brown he was a flight engineer on the Douglas C-47 Skytrain. So the Skytrains are what they use the, to deliver Mr. Jimenez to their landing zones. And I don't know if Mr. Jimenez and Mr. Brown were in the in ever-crossed paths. But needless to say, Mr. Brown was very crucial to the D-Day operation of getting these paratroopers in. They... Basically, a crew chief on a aircraft makes sure. It, basically, a crew chief on the aircraft makes sure makes sure that it's airworthy. That is mechanically, gas, anything that needs to be fixed. So, his crew dropped paratroopers at 0330 with others in formation, and you know they he. Talked about different things that happened, and so here's his story.
5: The preparation in the, uh, Normandy was just like any other day of training we had. We knew what we had to do and what our job was, and uh, we put it all together. We took off the, the proper time that they were allowed to take off and still was told to take off, and uh, no no accidents whatsoever on the takeoff. Going in, the number of airplanes we had in the air was just. The dramatic scene to see all those airplanes. I saw a lot of them from where I was, but there were many of them that I wasn't able to see. But there again, that uh, uh, just flying in, realizing where we were going and what the problems might be of our getting shot down, or uh, it's supposed to be the last day we're we'll flying an airplane, or I really didn't give any consideration to that. I just had a job to do, and that and uh, had there wasn't any fear put in it at all. My responsibilities in the airplane, I served as the engineer which took care of the airplane 100 percent. All the maintenance required on the engines as well as the landing gears and so forth. And uh, you had to make sure it was ready to go when we when they said that, you know, called a mission. With paratroopers, we load the paratroopers on the airplanes. We have 16 usually in what we call the a group and would hook up their lines to, on the parachute lines to the static lines. And uh, they had seats that they sit down on both sides of the plane. We'd take off and go to our destination. When we got there, everybody would be given orders to stand up at a certain time, make sure their shroud lines are hooked to the cable, and uh, we'd get a green light when we got in the, in the drop zone. And I was usually at the back door when they go going out. And uh, make sure they cleared the door. They only made one. The chutes were automatically open in their packs. And I know of, and I don't know of any accidents we had in that area. But uh, in training, we had a lot of people got injured, legs and different parts of the body when they hit the ground. They were trained to land certain ways, and uh, not always at a low altitude. You get the chance to if you not get. A, swing a couple times on the parachute before he hit the ground, but uh, it was it was quite an experience knowing these boys could possibly get hit before they got on the ground by a ground fire. But when the guys got up to go out, they knew that they were going to go, and uh, there wasn't any hoopla or anything like this and, uh, for them to leave. I just out they went, and uh, they knew they had a job to do when they got on the ground and they, to get back with their groups and uh, it was it was quite an experience knowing these boys could possibly get hit before they got on the ground by a ground fire yeah i stood right at the doors they'd come up past me going out there wasn't any words spoken as far as uh see you later or anything like that i mean they had a job to do and they were going to go do it we were able to get out of there without too much trouble but we were prepared for it if if we had to i often wondered myself you know if i had to, Joined the parachute club, uh, which I never wanted to, but if I had to go out that door, I'd have been out. I'd, I'd have been the number one if I had to go.
2: <laughs> the incredible thing that I learned from Mr. Brown is that he stood on the back of the plane and watched all those paratroopers get delivered out of that plane in a fast rate to the drop zone. I couldn't even imagine seeing all this chaos around you, hearing all this chaos and seeing these, these warriors being dropped into a combat zone. I mean, it just uh, shows how much I really admire what the veterans of D-Day did for our country and even Europe. So the final guy I want to introduce you to is Owen Mack McLaughlin, Mr. McLaughlin, was part of the 387th Battle Group. He flew B-26s over Utah Beach during the D-Day invasion. Bombing began around midnight on June 6, 1944. McLaughlin did not know what the upcoming mission was going to be. Like, like the rest of his, his warrior friends, everything was held in top secret because they didn't want to let the Germans know what was going on. McLaughlin and his crew flew over 60 combat missions in World War II, which is an incredible amount of airworthiness because most of these planes were being shot down by, you know, enemy gunfire and and flak and things of, of that nature. Mr. McLaughlin is quite the character. He told us about all kinds. Mr. McLaughlin was quite the character. He told me all kinds of things about how he would get the plane ready and, and, you know being the bombardier on that day and you know he had no idea what d-day was
0: well d-day i'll tell you how it happened i woke up that morning about one o'clock and we went there and i said what the hell we getting up this early because they, 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 we didn't know anything about it till it happened. if anybody knew about it couldn't fly because they could be tortured and told what could happen. So once you pl- got into a you weren't allowed to ever fly over the plane again, over France again, or Belgium, or Holland, or Germany. And so that we got out there, we got to the briefing room about 1.15, and somebody said, it's D-Day. I said, what the hell's D-Day? And uh, pretty soon they, they had the briefing, and we were gonna, five beachheads, the British had two and we had two and the Canadians had one and we were going to bomb Omaha Beach and, uh, and the one they over there that I bombed and, uh, they, they, and we were going to bomb and we had to bomb six minutes ahead of them and we couldn't take a phase of action. We had to fly uh, without in case we dropped our bombs and so we wouldn't kill any of our own troops and overnight they painted every ship in uh, in England over there with invasion stripes around the body and around the wings. And uh, every bomber, every fighter, every transport plane, all the spotted little small planes, everyone, if I got that painting contract, I'd have been a millionaire. <laughs> so we flew that day and I remember going out and we'd get, and it, 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 worst day of a stinking rain, you couldn't see ahead of you, we were taxing out, 50, 60 planes but put a bumper, and I've I'm, been I'm there and I'm ready to take off and I'm the bombardier navigator and all of a sudden I realized they didn't wear a chute with a... I had a separate... The chute was separate from the harness. And I said, I can't find my chute. And we were out there and ready to take about the next 10 that take off and I said, Anybody checked and they couldn't find it. They said we don't have it. The pilot, Pete Hanson said, well, we'll abort. And I said, no. I said, this is the biggest day of my life. I'm going to go. He says, I gave you a word. I won't jump out and leave you. So I flew without a parachute on D-Day. I always said prayers on the target, on the mission, but I said, well, for everybody that damn day. And... Uh, we got hit a couple of times ago. We bombed it a below 3,000 foot, got hit by ground fire a couple of times. Always the tail seems to get hit more than the front. There's a lot of when you fly over like the submarine, and you got a hundred guns shooting at you. You look up and you see all those bursts up there, and if it's no wind up there, you, it scares you because all the bursts from the first flight had been up there. Now it looked like you got a thousand guns, and a lot of people get scared seeing all those. I never did. It's always everything was interesting to me. It? On Utah Beach, going over it, uh, the greatest armada in the history of the world was down there. The first, as you went in, the the whole. Uh, North Sea, there in the English Channel is nothing but ships. And you go in, and we keep in mind uh, we we went in, we were going in to bomb at 15,000, and the uh, Pathfinder ships had a, co- a, a code word they gave us that we had to load go down and bomb below the cloud. And we started letting down and got down that. 12, 10, 9, 8, and it's got right about 5, you begin to see the big ships, and about 4,000 we could see them, and all the biggest are about 10,000 ships down there, battleships, 4, or 5 shooting at the shore, everybody was shooting at everybody, it was just interesting as hell, and we joined up, and we weren't sure it was our squadron, but in that mess, we just got in formation, and flew down there, and didn't take any evasive action dropped our bombs and they were shooting up a bunch of ground fire shooting there. everybody a b-24 was coming out from bombing with radar crashed on the shore but one of my best friends was a bombardier next door and he was in number four we was number five and uh they got a direct hit in the cockpit and uh killed uh, the bombardier was blown out of the plane and the airplane and, and when you're in formation with a plane that's been hit like that it looks like he's backing up because he doesn't quite have the power. He's losing a little bit of power and it looks like he's just backing the damn place, backing up. And it was on fire and the, uh, only one person got out of alive out of it. We were hit. We were on fire real bad. We had fire going back to the tail and the pilot dove down to get keep the fire away. And he and the co-pilot, Lou, were, t- were feathered in. We had a fire engine. Uh, we had a, what you call it, to put the fire out in the engine. But it wasn't working at first. It took us almost a minute. And uh, the fire was burning all over. And they finally got it down. We had to fly back to England on one engine, which for an inexperienced pilot, that was a. they used to call it the maker. The B-26 was really hard to fly, especially to land on one engine. But they did a magnificent landing. Landing good.
2: The other thing that was impressive about Mr. McLaughlin and all these other men too is that they knew all of their people that were on that plane or with them that day and they could recall it like it was yesterday. There were so many names that I heard that, you know, you're like, wow, you remember that after 70 plus years of, of living your life? And it, it's just amazing. And really a testament of how the warrior spirit a really a testament really a testament on how the warrior spirit kind of lives on even when these guys get get up there in age they're still remembering the people they served with and who looked out for them and and I just think that's just a testament of the bonds that are formed in military service well, I want to thank you for listening to this show it's it was a little different we had you know multiple guests that were pre-recorded through the years that I kind of spliced together and made a show out of it. I just think June 6, 1944 is a very important piece of U.S. and international history and that you can let other people know about this podcast and pass it on to them and have them hear from D-Day veterans from, you know, straight from their mouths. Thanks for listening to The Valor Podcast. Make sure to like us on Facebook, and you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play or any podcast management app. Visit our webpage at thevalorpodcast.com. That's thevalorpodcast.com. Finally, find your mission. There are many veteran organizations, nonprofits, and veterans needing your help. I promise, you'll make some great friends. And a little bit of outro, we are going to have Mr. McLaughlin take us out with a song that his buddies would sing when they were bombing different uh, targets and this one was the one that they used on utah beach so have a great week
0: it was late in the evening the guests were all leaving O'Reilly was closing the bar when he turned around and said to the lady in red get out you can't stay where you are she shed a tear in her bucket of beer as she thought of the cold night ahead when a gentleman dapper stepped out of the crapper and these are the words that he said, her mother never told her the things a young girl should know about the ways of Air Force men and how they come and go. Age has taken her beauty, life has dealt her a scar. So remember your mothers and sisters, boys, and let her sleep under the bar.